0: Thank you, Paul, and we'll go right on to introduce our next speaker. Thank you, Charlie, for that wonderful uh, presentation. I think it will stimulate a lot of discussion for our panel. So our next speaker is Dr. Stephen Johnson, who's a professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at University of Colorado at Denver. He's the Associate Division Head for Clinical Affairs in the Division of Infectious Disease, He is the director of the University of Colorado HIV AIDS clinical program and the medical director of the Colorado AIDS Education and Training Center. Steve is well known for his contributions to our knowledge about primary care of HIV and new therapies for HIV, for persons living with HIV infection. And he's going to talk to you today about primary care concerns for the aging person with HIV infection. Steve?
1: Thank you, uh, Dr. Benson and Dr. Volberding for inviting me. Thank you for IAS USA for putting this together. And I appreciate you all for attending. Uh, as Dr. Metchen mentioned, we're gonna focus on primary care concerns for the aging population, a topic that gets more important each year as our ability to uh, treat HIV uh, has progressively uh, improved. Um, I do have one disclosure that I uh, have listed here. The uh, objectives are are really threefold. First of all, I'd like to review for you the uh, common comorbidities uh, in older people with HIV. If you are uh, uh, in practice and doing a lot of care, I think this is a very familiar subject uh, for you. And also recognizing what uh, uh, leads to death. I then want to turn and talk about age-related recommendations uh, from mostly the US Preventive Service Task Force, although I will mention uh, the IDSA uh, primary care uh, guidelines, focusing on some of the recommendations that uh, have specific age ranges. And then I'll end by talking about uh, immunizations uh, in older people uh, with HIV. So let's start by understanding the causes of morbidity and mortality in older people with HIV. And of course, HIV as a cause of death has declined uh, dramatically over time. Uh, the, uh, in the current situation, the majority of deaths among people with HIV uh, who are in care are related to, to other conditions. For those individuals that have a death due to HIV, as is illustrated on this slide from the CDC, What has happened over time is that people have continued to live longer and that if HIV is a cause of death, it occurs at an older age. You can see at the right side of this graph that at the time of death due to an HIV related cause, uh, half of the individuals were uh, 55 or older. But most of the causes of death are are not HIV related. So here's another CDC publication looking at the uh, death rate over time rates per uh, 1000 persons with diagnosed HIV infection. So if you want a percent, you could just take the y-axis and divide by 10. The solid line indicates total deaths and, and you can see that that has continued to decline. The, the um, era of highly uh, active antiretroviral therapy began in the mid 1990s, but we continue to see improvements overall on HIV outcome. And I think that probably reflects improvements in care, improvement in the quality of our HIV medications, and perhaps more of a focus on other aspects of care, like primary care. If you take these deaths and and look at HIV-related deaths, that's the dotted line there, and you can see that that has continued to decline uh, in the current era. But if you look at the dashed line, which represents non-HIV-related deaths, that looks more like a plateau. And of course, this is a partial list of the comorbidities that we commonly see in people with HIV, uh, mental illness, uh, substance use, often polysubstance use, complications of human papillomavirus infection, including genital cancers, head and neck cancers, complications of uh, viral hepatitis, including uh, end-stage liver disease and hepatocellular carcinoma, sexually transmitted infections. Certainly globally, uh, tuberculosis is is one of the most important uh, comorbidities. There are a series of metabolic conditions, some of which are are quite a bit more frequent in people with HIV, and then non-AIDS cancers. Um, Non-AIDS cancers may turn out a bit to be a misnomer, as as some of these cancers may actually be related to uh, immunodeficiency. This is a study from Kaiser Permanente looking at life expectancy at individuals uh, from age 21. And you can see the the triangles represent uh, people with HIV infection and the dots represent people without HIV infection. So if you look at at total life expectancy, you can see that this gap has progressively closed. Uh, There may be still a five or 10 year gap uh, as a group for people uh, with HIV versus without HIV, but it continues to, to narrow over time. However, uh, as illustrated on the bottom of the slide, if you look at comorbidity-free years, then you see a significant difference that has not really changed. And in the box on the right, you can see some of the definitions of comorbidities that uh, are, were included in this study. And if you look specifically at the events per 100-person years uh, of any comorbidity and and specific comorbidities, you can see uh, a difference in overall mortality, uh, but then also kind of striking here, uh, chronic liver disease, chronic kidney disease, lung disease, diabetes, and uh, cancers. So I think it underscores the importance of us uh, uh, focusing on primary care screenings. Some of us, you know, come out of uh, infectious disease programs and infectious disease uh, clinics. And I think it's especially incumbent on us to either develop better primary care skills or to partner with individuals that uh, um, are involved in primary care. Uh, In Colorado, I'm involved with uh, several outreach clinics that involve uh, collaboration with family practitioners and uh, a general internist, and it's a, it's a pretty attractive model. I learn a lot uh, from them about uh, primary care, and again, as time has gone by, um, uh, comprehensive primary care uh, uh, is a key to outcome for people with HIV. So there are some resources for primary care screenings and people with HIV. I'm going to focus on two here. One is the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, of course, which which has a, uh, uh, 53 different recommendations that have either a, a grade A or grade B recommendation. And again, I'm going to focus on the subset that, that uh, have specific uh, age-related guidance. But I do want to also mention the primary care guidelines for, for people with HIV. Uh, these were actually just updated in, in 2020. So it's a very contemporary and comprehensive resource uh, for you to use uh, uh, for guidance, for uh, managing uh, patients. So the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force uh, provides different grades for its recommendations. And in general, grade A and B recommendations uh, should be offered. Uh, the service should be provided. And, and the other thing related to that is that uh, – uh, commercial payers and other uh, sources of, of coverage uh, tend to cover these uh, screenings. As I mentioned, uh, 53 of these recommendations uh, currently have A or B ratings. And so I've just listed them in, in a couple tables here. Um, a screening, uh, ultrasound one time in men age 65 to 75, whoever smoked um, I know we were talking about the, the electronic medical record in the, in the previous discussion. Um, most electronic medical records, including ours, are actually pretty good at, at prompting us uh, with a health maintenance module so that we can kind of keep some of these uh, uh, recommendations in hand. Uh, diabetes mellitus screening, of course. Um, aspirin used to prevent cardiovascular disease and colorectal cancer. Uh, recommended in, in adults age 50 to 59 who have a 10% or greater risk of cardiovascular disease are not at increased risk of bleeding and have a life expectancy of at least 10 years. Breast cancer screening has an age range of 50 uh, to 74 years uh, biennial screening uh, in women. And then cervical cancer screening uh, has an age range uh, at least up to age 65 years. I wanted to uh, emphasize uh, this screening for breast and cervical cancer in women with HIV. And for this, I'll, I'll refer to the IDSA primary care guidelines, which, again, were very recently uh, updated. The guidelines are actually quite similar. Breast cancer age 50 to 75 years uh, performed at least every two years. And then cervical cancer for those above 30 years, um, there's an option of, of pap smear only versus pap with HPV testing. And, uh, and in general again continue screening past 65 years one of the interesting articles that i recently read was the uh, growing population of adults who will uh, uh, be over 100 years old in the united states and that makes me think that some of these age-related recommendations um, uh, may need to be adjusted over time and uh, also i appreciate dr flexner's point that uh, that some people are physiologically older than other people or younger than people, uh, despite uh, a similar age. One other table. So other screenings, uh, colorectal screening, you know, we've traditionally done this uh, uh, from uh, individuals age 50 to 75 years. uh, But earlier this year, there was an update, uh, a B recommendation for uh, adults uh, age 45 to 49 years. There's a specific recommendation regarding falls prevention, uh, hepatitis C screening, CT lung cancer screening, which also was recently adjusted to, uh, to, to just 20-pack year history, and then osteoporosis screening. There are some differences from in guidelines, of course. The uh, USPSTF really focuses on postmenopausal women less than 65 years at increased risk, as well as all women 65 years and older whereas our IDSA guidelines recommend screening in uh, all postmenopausal women and men who are age uh, 50 years or greater. I wanted to mention a little bit about cause of death because I think it helps to inform the importance of the screenings that we're doing. Uh, This is from the DAD study. The DAD, of course, is is that very large cohort where we've learned a lot about a lot of things, Uh, the uh, the incidence of comorbidities, side effects of antiretroviral therapies. But they've also had a very systematic approach to categorizing causes of death in people with HIV. And this is data from a a publication in 2014. The columns on the left is the time period of 1999 to 2000. The columns on the right are 2009 to 2011. You can see some changes have occurred over time, and of course, if we had an even more contemporary analysis, some of these trends may have changed uh, further. But you'll see a decline in in deaths due to AIDS, that's in the light blue, and you'll see a jump in the the percentage of uh, deaths due to non-AIDS cancers. We looked at this at our own program at the University of Colorado, where we looked at 100 consecutive deaths over a six-year period. Uh, we have a relatively large HIV program um, and, uh, and, and could categorize 32 of those uh, uh, deaths as cancer deaths. Now, a couple of these, you know, would be AIDS-defining, certainly lymphoma and cervical cancer. Uh, but you can see the prevalence of some of the other uh, conditions, including lung cancer. And in the uh, key on the right, I've put some of the, the cofactors that we think are important, uh, HPV infection, viral hepatitis. Tobacco use uh, tobacco use being still more prevalent uh, as a whole in people with HIV compared to the uh, general population. This is another cohort that looked at cancer as a cause of death in people with AIDS in the United States. Very big cohort, 83,000 people. Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma was the most common cause of cancer death, but lung cancer was the most common uh, non-AIDS cancer. And so I think it's appropriate to uh, to emphasize the CT lung cancer screening. Uh, again, uh, JAMA earlier this year, uh, the 2021 update of their 2013 recommendation and applies now to people aged 50 to 80 years who have a 20-pack year history of uh, smoking and either currently smoke or have quit within the past uh, 15 years annual screening uh, with low-dose just CT and then the caveat, the screening should be discontinued uh, once the person has not uh, smoked for 15 years or develop a, a health problem that substantially affects life uh, expectancy. Now, this is another study that I like to use to point out the, uh, the prevalence of non aids cancers. This is a, uh, a comparison of cohorts. Uh, the n- numerator is actually two different HIV cohorts. The HIV outpatient study, or HOPs, and then the adult spectrum of disease uh, project. And then the comparator arm is actually a general cancer cohort in the United States called SEER. And uh, by comparing these cohorts, then generating these uh, standardized rate ratios. So the the, the rate, the way you read this table is that people with HIV have a risk of anal cancer that's 43 times uh, that of the uh, uh, general population. And of course, a number of other cancers that are lift, uh, listed here are, uh, are uh, at statistically higher levels. And, and I think when you look at the list, you can think of some of the cofactors we've already talked about in terms of tobacco use and, uh, and uh, HPV infection, for example, viral hepatitis. One of the interesting things is some of the studies that have looked at lung cancer, even when you need control for tobacco use, uh, there has been an association with a low CD4 count and, uh, or a low CD4 nadir, So although much of this may be due to these comorbidities, these other infections or habits such as tobacco use, it's also possible that there's a component of HIV itself that a period of immunodeficiency reduces, uh, immune surveillance and, uh, and, and, uh, increases the risk of cancer. So I thought I'd also then, uh, 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 emphasized the colorectal cancer screening. Uh, this was a 2021 update of the 2016 recommendation, uh, recommending a colorectal screening in all adults 50 to 75 as an A recommendation, but now uh, a younger group, 45 to 49 years. And I'd be interested from the group today, whether any of you have oper- operationalized uh, this uh, lower age range uh, for screening. And then, and, I included that screening may be offered to selective individuals age 76 or, or, or higher, based on overall health, prior screening, and, uh, and preferences. Um, I, th- I think this is important uh, to mention that, that, that despite the presence of these guidelines, that that there can be room for clinical judgment, and uh, and you know, provided you can get uh, certain screening tests co- covered, uh, it may make sense to screen. Uh, beyond the age's recommendation, uh, recommended uh, in certain settings. And I just list some of the screening methods, which can include either stool-based tests or visual- visualization uh, methods. So as it illustrates, I think an important strategy uh, in the uh, um, clinic now is to have a uh, specific uh, approach to cancer screening And I've listed some of the common cancers and some of the uh, important interventions here. Um, As you can see, under anal cancer, uh, the use of anal cytology is still a bit of a question mark. Uh, We and a number of other centers are part of the national anchor study, which is really going to help to determine whether treating high-grade dysplasia uh, uh, can prevent cancer. Look forward to the results of that story. Um, and again, I think many of the other items on this slide are, are, are uh, self-explanatory. So, in the re- re- remaining few uh, minutes, I want to turn to immunizations in older adults living with HIV, and I'll start with a slide that, that I put together to kind of, you know, uh, look like the uh, uh, immunization schedule that the ACIP spub- publishes, but this is specifically for people with HIV. And it may reflect a little bit of my bias. So, for example, uh, in in individuals over age 65, I actually do favor the high-dose influenza vaccine. Uh, You could also argue that the new edge-advented influenza vaccine, which is more immunogenic in older individuals, might be preferred. The the ACIP has generally not expressed a preference on, on flu vaccines and says just get a flu vaccine. The other thing I'll mention here is that, uh, at least in our practice, and I presume uh, yours, that the recombinant zoster vaccine has really essentially replaced the live zoster vaccine. Um, And then down at the bottom, of course, we now have the COVID-19 vaccine. Again, uh, CDC states uh, no preference. Um, Maybe the panel will have interesting thoughts about this. Uh, Our group, I think, has favored the two-dose mRNA vaccines, either Pfizer or Moderna, but uh, frankly, we need uh, additional data to kind of guide uh, those types of specific recommendations. I mentioned the high-dose influenza vaccine. I have a series of references here. We know it's more immunogenic in individuals 65 or older. We know it's more immunogenic in people uh, with HIV, One of our local practices in Colorado here uh, gives the high dose influenza vaccine to everybody with HIV, regardless of age. Uh, We also know that at least in one study, it's been shown to provide better protection for laboratory confirmed influenza. And also in one flu season uh, was demonstrated to have a mortality benefit. Now, I wanted to mention that the uh, opportunistic infection uh, guidelines were actually just updated uh, earlier this year. And there was a significant update of the immunization section. So I'd encourage you to look at the immunization section because there's there's some new resources there, including some differences between what the OI panel recommends versus what the ACIP uh, recommends. And this is just I've extracted a table here so that you can kind of see how it's laid out uh, in terms of the different vaccines and where it varies by age and, and of course, also by CD4 count. So just to summarize immunizations in older adults, uh, consider the high-dose influenza vaccine. Certainly, uh, recombinant zoster vaccine is preferred over the live zoster vaccine. Of course, age 65 is, uh, is an indicator for a booster of the polysaccharide vaccine, provided at least five years have elapsed since the last dose. And then you continue to boost the tetanus and the meningococcal vaccines. Uh, the uh, recommendations are for the meningococcal vaccine, I find kind of interesting. It's really a pretty uncommon disease, uh, more common in people with HIV, but still uh, very uncommon. I want to end by just mentioning a couple things about COVID-19 vaccines and HIV. Uh, I, some of the large cohort studies have reported a higher risk of mortality in people who develop COVID-19, and the CDC has now recognized HIV as one of the medical conditions that increases risk. Uh, And of course, people with HIV separately often have other comorbidities associated with COVID-19. Currently the ACIP does not express a preference regarding which vaccine to use. So these are some of the factors that I think you associate with severe disease with COVID-19. And you can see that they're common in people with HIV. One of the things that we're most proud about is that uh, over 50% of people with HIV in the United States are over 50 or close to that. Uh, Obesity is common in HIV, and now we're evaluating weight gain with ART, cardiovascular disease, lung disease, increased tobacco use, and and so on. And the other thing is that that studies of COVID-19 deaths have shown a, a higher rate among men uh and uh, we don't know how much of that is biologic versus behavioral but of course uh, in the united states the hiv epidemic is is uh is proportionally higher uh, uh among men so i thought i'd just leave you with a few talking points for people with with hiv just in case you have some vaccine hesitant individuals that you're dealing with i think it's important uh, for people to know that people with hiv were included on all of these trials and uh, and uh, but we are actually waiting on more specific information about a response uh, to these vaccines. Um, none of the COVID-19 vaccines, of course, are live vaccines. The other point I like to make is people with HIV uh, on ART with a normal CD4 count, we expect them to respond well to licensed vaccines. So we might expect the same with COVID-19 vaccines. And people with HIV of advanced disease may have a reduced response to vaccines, but they're also at greater risk for severe uh, COVID-19. So what have we talked about uh, in this talk? Uh, Life expectancy continues to improve for people with HIV. So focusing on primary care is uh, is critical. Uh, Comorbidities continue to play a large role in morbidity and mortality. And many of the US PSTF recommendations are particularly important for older people with HIV. I've highlighted uh, that there are updated guidelines for lung cancer and colorectal cancer screening. And, uh, of course, a number of immunizations are important in older people, and the role of COVID-19 vaccination continues to evolve. So at that point, I will stop, and uh, I can go ahead and unshare my screen, and be happy to... Uh, to answer questions or uh, equally hear comments from uh, the rest of you.
0: Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Johnson. That was a spectacular uh, talk and very informative. So I'll start. uh, This is a comment, um, but I'm going to turn it into a question in a moment. But one of the comments in our Q&A is that um, many practitioners would continue breast cancer screening for women older than 74 who have at least a 10 year life expectancy. And I would think that for people with HIV who are well controlled on antiretroviral therapy, that would apply to women older than 74 with HIV as well. You have any comment related to that?
1: Yeah, I would, you know, it's a, uh, I, I'm reporting these kind of guidelines. Uh, but you know, sometimes our clinical practice varies, and and we've certainly continued screening uh, uh, mammogram uh, in, in in women over age 75. So again, I think I think there's room for clinical judgment. There's uh, there's room for kind of a shared discussion with the patient. But we have not actually, uh, in fact, for for a number of these different recommendations, as long as we can get them improved, you know, we've we've tended to not necessarily uh, use the upper bound of the age as a, as a firm recommendation to stop. So I, I certainly support the comment, you know, to continue uh, uh screening. It, it's worthwhile having a discussion with the patient about the, the benefits of screening and, you know, even healthy people may, uh, may change their minds over time. So that's, that's a good point.
0: And I guess along the same lines, the, uh I... Cervical cancer screening for women over the age of 65 is no longer recommended for people without HIV infection. And would you continue to do cervical cancer screening for women with HIV infection over the age of 65?
1: Yes, I would. And actually, there's a discussion, you know, in the IDSA guidelines about, and they kind of use the term past 65 years. <laughs> a little bit, you know, allows you a little bit of wiggle, wiggle room. But again, you know, it's, uh, You know, and obviously people that, that have, you know, cervical dysplasia and, uh, and, and so on, you know, it's, you wouldn't want to arbitrarily stop at some period of time. And again, you know, we're that life expectancy, uh, uh, line that continues to kind of narrow and so on. I think, uh, I, I think many of our HIV positive patients will, you know, that are physiologically, uh, Doing really well at age 75 may, you know, may live another 10 or 20 years. So again, uh, I think, I think that's a, a related good point is that we have to think carefully about, uh, stopping just because of an age range. Now, now one of the issues you run into, you know, is, is, is could you get pushback from payers and things like that if you're trying to do things that are, that are outside of the guidelines? But I haven't really seen that we've had much difficulty with that. Um, You know, sometimes we change our uh, referral a little subtly, you know, to kind of reflect our concern about something. So it sounds a little bit less like screening and more like we're doing it for clinical indications.
0: And uh, another question that comes from our audience, are there any current data regarding KS incidents in older age groups with people living with HIV?
1: Well, I, you know, m- maybe others on the on the panel can answer that. I, I, I'm not aware. Uh, you know, we've anecdotally still see an occasional uh, case of Kaposi sarcoma. Uh, certainly, the overall incidence in the U.S. seems to be quite a bit lower, um, but I can't really cite specific data.
0: Um, and how about uh commenting on doing anal pap smears in patients at risk for HPV infection. I think you covered this a little bit in your talk but maybe expand a little.
1: Yeah, and and I would encourage you actually to look at the look at the discussion of this in the new IDSA guidelines because it's a little bit more uh in favor of doing anal cytologic screening. I think uh as I mentioned with the with the anchor study, we actually don't know at this point that aggressive treatment of high grade dysplasia versus a very, you know, active monitoring program actually reduces, you know, the the risk of, of anal cancer compared to, you know, careful digital rectal exams and, and other types of screening. Um, you know, I think we hopefully that the uh, the. Uh, ANCHOR uh, trial will help to definitively uh, answer this. We've really offered it as, as a standard of care uh, in our clinic for quite some time. Uh, but when individuals are in certain settings, perhaps rural clinics without, you know, access to uh, groups that do high-resolution anoscopy, it's certainly not wrong not to do it. And, and, and part of the guidelines are if you are going to do it, then you, you actually need a program in place to kind of react to the findings. And so if you're if you're finding high-grade dysplasia, ideally you would have a referral um, to uh, to undergo high-resolution anoscopy. I know that our program here at the University of Colorado and Denver Health, we actually have individuals coming from all over Colorado, you know, coming to our anorectal disease clinic to kind of get these screenings. Um, but again, if, if you're not in a position that you can do it, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's wrong to not do it, but, but I do think it's then very important for, uh, digital rectal exams.
0: Great. Well, I think that's all the time we have for questions. So any additional ones will answer in the panel discussion. And thank you very much for really a wonderful talk, Steve. I'm going to turn it back over to Paul to introduce our last speaker of the day.